This Expert Insights podcast was recorded in front of a live audience on the 30th of November, 2016. The discussion topic is alcohol and mental health, cause or effect. Our panel members are Dr. Oliver O'Connell, who is a consultant psychiatrist, addiction specialist, psychotherapist, and the medical director of drug and alcohol services at Wesley Hospital Ashfield. Professor Francis K. Lampkin is a director at the National Health and Medical Research Council in Mental Health and Substance Use. She's also deputy director at the Center for Brain and Mental Health Priority Research Center at the University of Newcastle. Matthew is our lived experience representative. Our chairperson for this evening is Dr. Vera Gordon. So to start with, I might start with you, Oliver. From your perspective, how do you see the relationship between alcohol and mental health kind of in in broad terms, firstly? Um, Well, if we look at the... It's interesting the way that question's even asked because, like, alcoholism is not a part of mental health, like alcohol and mental health. So, But I see it as a part of, uh, well, mental health. It's, It's a mental illness and it's included in the DSM. But we all, uh, well, it's common knowledge that people with other mental disorders have twice the use, of, uh, twice the rate or the prevalence of alcoholism than the general population. And the other way around, people with alcoholic disorders have twice the rate of ment- other mental disorders like depression, anxiety. So in that sense, um, one exacerbates the other. And if you've got both conditions, it's a, it's a bigger problem. Like if you get any two illnesses, one tends to exacerbate the other. The big problem we have, though, is that when people have both conditions, they tend to fall between the cracks because detox facilities often say, well, we can't manage you because you're too depressed. You can't do the program. We can't, we can't help you. And they can't go to the other facility because they say, well, look, you know, you really need detox and to give up alcohol, so we can't help you. So a lot of these people, if they're severe, fall between the cracks. People with mild comorbidity tend to do okay because they can go into any facility and manage the program. But if you don't manage the program or you can't do the program, you generally tend to get discharged. So that's one of the problems. In terms of the relationship, there's people are always trying to work out whether the alcohol causes the mental illness or the mental illness causes the alcohol problem or whether it's a shared sort of genetic vulnerability, or whether it's just coincidence, like you tend to start drinking at about the same age, that you tend to get an alcohol problem in your late teens, particularly for males. So, yeah, so in terms of the relationship, it's, it's got many aspects to it, but it's very badly managed because we don't have any core morbidity units. I might follow that up with just um, asking you, Francis. Often clinicians express kind of a bit of a sense of hopelessness mm-hmm. in treating people with comorbid alcohol and maybe mood disorders or other mental health conditions. What do you think is the sort of source of that hopelessness and is it warranted? Uh, so, f- uh, first of all, I can understand that there is a sense of, I, I guess, hopelessness or even despair around um, you know, some of these issues that Oliver's already mentioned. 
um, but doesn't mean that there is no hope. Um, and so, and I think that's mainly due to, to, again, one of the things Oliver was saying, and that is that because of the difficulties that people um, find in accessing treatment, any sort of service that will actually um, help them out in their time of need, often by the time it is that, that a person finds their right service or gets access to a service, the conditions have been around for quite some time, the interrelationships have become much more developed and enmeshed, and there's people are presenting with some more chronic and severe and complex presentations, because you can imagine that all the other things that are happening in a person's life over the course of their um, you know, alcohol and um, mental health um, disorders um, tend to accumulate as well. So it can be very hard for the individual to know where to start and for the people helping, um, helping them through that journey and, and managing their treatment to know where to start because there's just so much going on. Um, and so I think that's where the, the hopelessness can come from. Um, and particularly if you're operating within systems that are quite siloed, to use a cliche about how it's described, um, they're, they're often quite, you know, you're limited in what you actually can help a person with based on your service philosophy. And so that can be not only frustrating for the person themselves, but for the clinicians operating in that, um, in that space. So I understand where that sense of, um, of hopelessness comes from. Mm. And so, Matt, I might check with you. Um, a lot of people talk about using alcohol to sort of self-medicate. Um, is that something you were doing with alcohol? Were you using it to manage? Absolutely, absolutely. So I wasn't diagnosed with bipolar until I was 27 years old in 2002. Uh, once I received that diagnosis and education and knowledge as to what bipolar actually was, I could look back in my life in hindsight and alcohol definitely was a crutch and I was using alcohol as self-medication without a doubt. Uh, long story short, uh, genetically uh, hereditary, I, I landed the perfect genes. I've got Scottish heritage on one side of the family, so alcoholism uh, exists there and the mood disorder. So my maternal grandmother, my mother's mother, suffered from bipolar disorder and I got married with the two. Uh, but yes, receiving that diagnosis uh, in the heights of hypermania, I definitely would drink to excess. Absolutely. Why? Why? Because you're feeling so good, invincible, that hypermania feeling life is one big party. So let's enhance it even more by drinking alcohol. What goes up must come down with bipolar. So in the depressive episodes, I just want that relief for a couple of hours so I don't feel so crap, I don't feel so rubbish. So I was self-medicating with alcohol on the depressive side as well. And, and Francis, I might just come back to you for a moment. Oliver mentioned that idea of primacy, like what's the underlying, what came first. Um, how important is it for us to work out chicken and egg, to work out what's primary? Well, I think it's important for academics <laughs> to talk about, and certainly we talk a lot about that. Uh, and I think uh, certainly from a service perspective, it's important, in inverted commas, because that's how services are set up around establishing which disorder was there first. Um, but in terms of a person sitting in front of me wanting some help for what's affecting them right now, I don't think it, 
actually matters, which came first. Often what um, people say to me is that, when we, number one, it's really hard to establish primacy, which has come first, if there have been, you know, long careers and, um, you know, and a long time since those symptoms um, all first emerged. As Oliver was saying, um, if it was happening, you know, it tends to happen sort of the early, the late teens and young adults um, when people are first drinking and experimenting with other substances. That's also the time when your first symptoms of, um, early symptoms of mental illness will honestly will emerge and it's kind of hard to disentangle, um, you know, whether you're using drinking to help cope with those symptoms or the drinking's causing the symptoms. And then um, because, you know, often again it's, you know, 10 and sometimes 18 years for alcohol use disorders before people actually get into treatment, access treatment, the relationship between the two you know, the conditions does change over time. And so what was relevant, um, you know, back in 2002 or even before then might not be so relevant now and what the person's seeking treatment for now. Can I add something just very shortly there? I've been fortunate enough to carry private health insurance my whole life. Uh, any private psychiatric hospital that I've had anything to do with or a stay at is always divided into a mood disorder unit and an alcohol and drug unit. So where does a bipolar alcoholic sit? That's, uh, and it's part of the silo mentality that you're mentioning now. It's, it's very hard. They have to place you on a particular level and put you through a particular program. There are still no programs that I'm aware of in any of the private psychiatric hospitals that tackle both issues at the same time. It's an either or. And so I've been hospitalised for both when perhaps as a field we could look more holistically rather than having to tick a box that Matt's here for alcoholism or Matt's here because he's having a manic or depressive episode. But also the, the problem's also, um, you know, exacerbated when um, not only do, you know, our services get set up around what's primary and what's secondary, but, you know, services that would otherwise be effective are withheld from people until these issues of primacy are sorted out. And the, again, our, again, it's research evidence, it's our treatment um, research that shows that even if it's only managing one aspect of a person's presentation, that's better than doing nothing. So, you know, treatment should not be withheld from people because you can't establish primacy, which is very hard to do anyway. Um, and, and when you're withholding a treatment that would be effective as well, uh, you know, it's not the perfect answer, but it's better than, um, you know, turning them away. And just to add to that, it, it is academic even if you do establish yeah. primacy because you've still got to treat what's in front of you. Yeah. If the person's in full-blown mania, you've got to treat that whether it came after their first alcohol experience right. or if they're intoxicated and withdrawing, then you've got to treat that. So, Do you feel more stigmatised by addiction and other mental health issues? It happens uh, when with people who want uh, uh, medical certificates for work, you know, I say, well, you know, it's going to say a psychiatrist on the end of it. Is that okay? And they go, well, can you just put depression, anxiety and not put the, anything about the addiction? But then families prefer their kids to have addictions rather than to have a mental illness. And then even within, you know, people in, in addiction units, there is a hierarchy and there's stigmatisation, you know, the methadone user... And the heroin user, the methadone, the heroin user sees the methadone user as someone who can't cut it. You know, you can't hack it out there on the streets. The addicts are saying, at least I'm not an alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> and the alcoholics are saying, at least I'm not an addict. My preference was uh, because I was working for big international 
banks uh, that it would be described as depression. Uh, that was the least stigmatised option that I had available to me, I guess, at the time. Bipolar, certainly, back in 2002, was very misunderstood. Uh, and I certainly didn't want alcoholism with a large part of my role being client entertainment. So I headed down the depression route for the reason, for time off work. That's how I structured it. Um, and, yeah, you're not tackling the whole issue when you're convincing yourself that that's yeah. the fundamental problem also. Yeah. Well, yeah. At least it distracts from recovery if you're worried yeah. about those other societal issues at a time when you need mm. to be trying to get the best treatment. For and you're less likely to accept treatment for it if you want to deny Correct. it's happening. Correct. Yeah. And Oliver, can I check with you? You have the luxury of being able to see people abstinent maybe for the first time in years when they're an inpatient. What do you discover? Is that useful, first of all? And what do you discover when people no longer have the alcohol on board? Well, after the acute detox period, they can present any way at all. They can be... Some, some go through this honeymoon phase like they're ecstatic, you know, and they're... Because we, we warn them that there's, you know, a post-acute withdrawal phase where they, they're basically anhedonic, like they don't get pleasure in things because the reward pathway is all mucked up. But... Some of them just go through this honeymoon phase and they prance around the ward saying how wonderful life is and I'm so clear and I'm not waking up sick. And then, you know, a week later they crash mightily and it's, I, I'm just going back to drinking. This is worth, if this is recovery, I want to drink again. So, so they present every way. You know, I, I feel you have to wait for about three months to make any decisions. So if a, most people come in on antidepressants because they go to their GP and say... I'm feeling terrible. They don't say I'm feeling terrible because I'm drinking a bottle of whiskey every night. So the GP gives them antidepressants and so they all... But I never touch them until about three months have elapsed because the antidepressant might be doing something and I don't know or it might not be doing anything. So I, I leave everything for about three months and then reassess. But that early three-month period is very difficult for the patient because the main thing that characterises it is very severe mood swings. They're up, they're down, they're up, they're down. And it's not their personality functioning, it seems to be something to do with the post-acute withdrawals. Yeah. And I think it's it's really critical, um, you know, in this period to understand and, and empathise with people. I mean, you're taking away, I'm pointing to you, um, um, because you're taking away a really important coping mechanism that's gotten a person to this point. Absolutely, yeah. And although it's for their better, you know, their health and well-being and better long-term outcome, mm -hmm. it's you've got to put something back in there for them yeah. to be able to use if you've got any hope of then, you know, prolonging the recovery. So having an understanding that, um, you know, the important role that alcohol or the substance is actually performing for the person um, and, you know, being able to empathise with that and then working with them over that time to build up that same, um, same coping mechanism and strategy without using the alcohol is um, really critical. Yeah, that applies to me. So I'm... Um Imagine as a 27-year-old male, uh, quite successfully building a career when I was diagnosed with bipolar, being told that you should not drink alcohol, you should not use recreational drugs, and here is a whole list of pharmaceutical medications that you need to take for the remainder of your life. Excuse me? <laughs> you're telling me, and this is when you're in hypermania, you're telling me because I'm so confident, I'm achieving so much, I'm surviving on three hours sleep a night that I need to take medication to make that, make, 
that feeling go away. Um, so I've fluctuated between periods of compliance with taking medication, following my medication regime. I'd reach stability. Well, I don't need this gunk anymore. In the bin it goes. I know how to manage it myself with alcohol and occasional recreational drugs. Uh, sure, it was part of my history as well. Um, with time, wisdom, manic episodes and very, very heavy depressive episodes, there became an acceptance that taking psychiatric medication is going to provide the best stability. But there are still periods now. So I've only been sober since July. I had a major relapse and bust after three years of being sober. It's a continual battle throughout life. And it generally happens when I reach stability. I don't need all this gunk that these doctors are prescribing me with all the side effects, the weight that it puts on, the tremors from lithium. I don't want to deal with that. I know how to manage it better than the people that have been educated and been at university for 10 plus years. Um, and also I think our <laughs> The bottle service, shop is yeah, a lot easier yeah. to go to. But our services are kind of set up for episodic care and, and trying to empower people to become active agents in their own health care. And so... We, you know, encouraging you to take the lead and, yes. you know, in and become the best manager of your own health care. Um, and, and obviously we still need to do, you know, a better job of not completely then going, OK, well, that's fine. Off you go. I've told you what you need to know. Yep. Um, but supporting you through that process and people through that process of working out for themselves what does work and what doesn't work. And um, So it's often when in that yeah. stable place that is actually the riskiest yeah. part of the... That's right. Yeah. Uh, for me, AA has been a godsend. It doesn't work for everyone, but that's where I... That's the strongest... Uh, um, avenue that I've found to remain abstinent from alcohol. The power of being in a room of uh, alcoholics, older, wiser, sober members, hearing their stories, there's something, it's hope. I guess the best way to sum it up, AA is all about hope um, and an absence of medical professionals being in the room belonging too. Belonging Yeah, it adds to what has been provided by the medical professionals and the two together work for me and work for a lot of my friends who experience the same sort of... And they're always yep. there. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, especially for people who've lost all support. You know, they can go to a lunchtime meeting, an evening meeting... They, they can always find a breakfast meeting, they can always find a meeting. And people talk about how, you know, they're in the dumps and they just drag themselves to a meeting to come out inspired. Um, I just wanted to ask a question of you, sorry, which is, uh, you know, the cliche rock bottom uh, that's where you finally think this can't go on. Was that the case for you or is that just so oversimplistic you just keep having rock bottoms or...? Uh, it's no, certainly the case, uh, 100%. And when you think you've, well, when I think I had hit my lowest rock bottom, there were plenty more to come. Um, they can be separated out into bipolar episodes and um, alcoholism, and also they can be married together and rock bottoms. Um, the rock bottom for me, uh, really was a combination of mania whilst I was in my heaviest alcoholism combined. Um, excessive spending, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, 
I was in the banking industry, so I was um, okay financially, um, but that whole cycle. Um, the drinking, when it becomes, so for me, the rock bottom around drinking was going from a couple of glasses a night, uh, you know, three months down the track, it's a bottle a night, three months down the track, it's two bottles a night. Um, it's then, oh, I'll just have a drink before I go to work today so I don't feel so bad. If the bottle shop opens at 8 a.m. in the morning, that must mean it's okay to drink. Uh, so it is a progressive um, fall into that rock bottom. Uh, then there's the insanity that goes with alcoholism. So we're evidence of that. Um, reputation damage is an absolute huge one. Uh, I left financial services because it was just not healthy because of the amount of alcohol and I'm, I'm now actually involved in um, drug and alcohol field myself because I've got a lot to give back. But um, yeah, when you start having accidents, um, you start losing the um, love and support of friends and family because they've just had enough. The financial mess that goes with that, relationships, the rock bottoms, that's what drove me to go to AA. Uh, in the end. And probably most important is to become completely transparent and honest with my psychiatrist and GP. What's the point of paying a psychiatrist to sit there? <laughs> I drink two glasses of wine a night when you're drinking three, you know, and I think they automatically double or triple it anyway from what I've worked out over the years. Um, become honest because it can spiral even worse than it has for me and I've met many people that have lost absolutely everything in the rooms of AA, sleeping on the streets, losing children to docks, you know, they're, they're, they call them the yets in Alcoholic Anonymous. <coughs> it's yet to happen if you continue to drink at that level, yeah. What are your thoughts about managed or controlled drinking programs? There, there aren't any, I can't find any controlled drinking programs in Sydney now, which is very disappointing. Mind you, I don't deal with people who can successfully use them, but I used to send a lot of my patients to these programs so that they could find out that they can't control their drinking, and it was very, very useful. But I think the people running them decided they weren't effective, so they weren't working. The problem with the controlled drinking programs is they were aimed at people who are drinking by choice, not people who are drinking compulsively. So, and the people who are drinking by choice are not going to go to a controlled drinking program because they can choose whether they want to drink or not anyway. So the people who are going to them were the people who can't actually succeed in them. And that was very, very useful because they got a lot of information about that. So, I mean, I do teach people or get people to try and control their drinking now. And it helps them to see, well, you know, I'm going to have two drinks Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, a bottle of wine on Saturday. And they come back on the next week and they say, well, I had a bottle of wine Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So I can't control it. And it's, it's very useful in that way. But I don't know of any in Sydney at the moment. And I don't know of anyone who told me they succeeded in controlling their drinking as a result. Of, of such a program. But I am dealing with the addicted end of the population, not 
the people who were used to be referred to as alcohol abusers, so they drank too much because they wanted to. Um, so there is that distinction. Unfortunately, that's gone now with the new DSM-5 that was in DSM-4. If I could um, also add to the idea of um, you know, goals, drinking goals and reduction goals, that um, it is a very personal thing. And the quickest way to you know, um, put somebody off engaging with a treatment program is to be prescriptive about what you think, you know, where, they should, where they should go and how they should get to their goal and how they should get to abstinence. So we know even from smoking that um, you know, it can take lots of times to quit and cut down you know, before people are actually successful or get to the goal they want to be in. It's the same with drinking. And I think it's also you know, supporting people to work through um, you know, their pathway to abstinence or to a drinking reduction goal and also giving them the skills and the strategies and the pathways to keep monitoring themselves and checking in to make sure, just like you, you sound like you're doing, um, when you're having, you know, make sure that it's keeping in check and keeping to your goals. It is, I've found, it is quite difficult to maintain. So. Um, around control drinking, I certainly tried that uh, in consultation with my psychiatrist, there was something, I think it's called the Sinclair method, um, where you take a combination of um, psychiatric pharmaceuticals, naltrexone, and that should help you um, keep a drinking at a safe level. It didn't work for me because I am an alcoholic. I, I admit that now. Um, the alternative to Alcoholics Anonymous is what's known as SMART meetings. You might have heard of those before. Um, they are not so much about um, standing up and pronouncing that you're an alcoholic. It's more about what you're doing in the right now and what you plan to do the week ahead. A lot of those SMART meetings aren't based on 100% abstinence. They are based on controlled drinking. So it does come down to the individual. For me, I'm a full-blown alcoholic. Controlled drinking doesn't work. I would love if it did, but <laughs> it's never going to. And I've had too much damage in my life to go back to that, but I did try for many years the controlled drinking path. For me personally, it is a very personal thing. No, I'm a full-blown alcoholic, so it doesn't work for me. But smart recovery is the alternative if you're looking for a forum of uh, controlled drinking and strategies around that, yeah. Is there any value in using psychiatric medications in someone who's drinking heavily? Um, I, it depends on the severity, I would say. I mean. Somebody with a psychotic process, I think you have to treat them regardless of, of what they're doing. You just have to treat it. As regards depression, I have seen an occasional person who does respond to antidepressants while they're still drinking, and it, it helps them to stop drinking. So I think, you know, it, it doesn't harm them, and it probably helps them. The only problem is while they're still actively drinking, their absorption isn't that good, and they're probably not that compliant with it. So it probably isn't doing a lot. But there is the occasional person who does take the antidepressant, feels better and thinks, I'm going to kick this alcohol. So I would treat them if they're very severe. I mean, I think if they're very severe, you have to treat it. I mean, if they're suicidal, you have to treat it. There is always the question, is it the alcohol that's causing the depression or is it something else? And 
but it's not going to hurt if you give them an antidepressant and they stay on it for three months and then they stop drinking and then you take them off it. And also, they're often, a lot of people come into detox and their anxiety suddenly goes away and they realise they were getting up every morning in withdrawals. And because they couldn't drink till five o'clock, they were in acute withdrawals all day, but they don't go into the GP and say, you know, I drank two bottles of wine last night and I'm in acute withdrawals, can I have an antidepressant? They say, I'm really anxious all the time. So there's recent evidence um, that we've just published uh, in our group, Tim Slade and Kath Chapman, uh, to demonstrate that, that the delay to treatment from the first emergence of an alcohol dependence is 18 years. That's dependence. It's a long time. Uh, and so people are, you know, and their families are, are experiencing and supporting a person through that journey. Uh, and also that even if, say, an affective disorder and an alcohol use disorder are present at the same time, a person will get treatment eight years earlier for their affective disorder than they will for their alcohol use disorder. So I think we do need to get better at asking about and detecting alcohol use and perhaps the social place of alcohol in our society is a little prohibit is, you know, prohibitive about that. Um, the other thing is that you know, a lot of people with comorbidity are excluded from the medication trials. So it's not that antidepressants, for example, I shouldn't speak about medication because I'm not medically trained, but it's not necessarily that uh, the antidepressants are always contraindicated in people who are drinking. It's just that they're usually excluded from research, so we don't know as much. But there is um, some research now emerging where um, antidepressant medication, for example, has been described whilst people are still drinking um, and it is safe to use in that context. We're not sh quite sure what the outcomes or benefits are, um, but perhaps there aren't the contraindications that we might have thought there are. From a personal perspective, uh, I accepted the diagnosis of bipolar disorder um, probably that eight very years you're talking about before I admitted that I was a full-blown alcoholic. Uh, the antidepressants did work for me whilst I was drinking heavily. What didn't work was lithium, which is the mood stabiliser I take for bipolar because I was just flushing that straight out of my system. So, yes, I would experience uh, periods of um, hypermania and mania but not periods of depression because the antidepressant was working even though I was drinking quite heavily, um, but lithium was not doing anything to stop the hypermania and mania. And in fact, that's interesting because it's, it's literally eight years. Wow. Yeah. What would you say are the differences between treating alcohol use disorders and other mental health conditions and how could these be consolidated so you could treat both simultaneously? Well, I'll just say one big difference. You mentioned how, like, I work in a hospital. It's got two floors. One is drug and alcohol and the other is um, general. Now, the big difference I find in, in the, on the two floors is that on, on the drug and alcohol floor, the patient learns to be responsible for their illness, whereas on the other floor, the patient is not taught any responsibility for their illness, not nearly as much as on the drug and alcohol floor. On the other floor, it's the doctor's responsibility. So it's, you know, if you don't feel good, it's because the doctor got it wrong. It's not because of anything you've done. Whereas on the other floor, if you're not feeling good, it's about taking responsibility for that and, you know, seeking help and working out how you can manage your feelings better and how you can manage your day better. 
So there's a big difference in philosophy of treatment is, is one of the problems. And the, and the problem is, you were saying earlier about going between floors, you go from one floor to the other floor and it's a completely different philosophical base for your treatment. And that's very, very confusing for someone, especially someone with an addiction where their addiction is just looking for one little crack so it can sort of assert itself again and say, oh, well, you know, these people were telling me all the wrong stuff. Of course I can drink. And so, so it, it doesn't work well. I think we need to get our philosophy of treatments more similar. You know, it's not that the person on the other floor shouldn't take responsibility. I mean, people can be responsible for their own mental health. And I would completely agree, um, of course, with that. And I think um, psychosocially, the content of the interventions that, that, we would, that we use in our research trials are the same. If, you're, if we're treating someone with a depressive disorder versus an alcohol use disorder versus an integrated treatment. So we've um, just recently finished up a trial where we recruited people who were, uh, had a major depressive disorder and were currently drinking alcohol, so alcohol dependence concurrently, and we randomised them to a depression-only cognitive behaviour therapy, motivational interviewing, um, mindfulness intervention, an alcohol-only one and an integrated one. And literally the difference between the three treatments weren't in the CBT and the strategies, but in the examples that we provided to explain the strategies. So problem solving is the same. Um, building up coping skills is the same. Um, you know, understanding thoughts that lead to feelings and behaviours is the same process but it's just different, you know, different examples. You know, we might, in an alcohol-focused intervention, talk about what, what are your permissive thoughts around alcohol. Um, in a mood context, it might be what are the thoughts that are, you know, keeping you in this cycle of feeling, feeling low um, or what are you reacting to. So in, in its barest essence, the actual strategies that we would teach in a psychosocial intervention don't differ all that much. Um, in the integrated intervention, and this is the difference, and this is, I think, what the key ingredient was in the success of this in the integrated intervention, was that rather than asking the person to then extrapolate the depression example to all other areas of their lives, or the alcohol, uh, the person in the alcohol intervention to do the same, in the integrated intervention we said, okay, so when you're feeling low, this is kind of what's happening, and this is um, potentially the process, and this is how you would apply this strategy here. You can take the same strategy and apply it when, so we actually make those links literally um, and uh, um, uh, and explicitly for the person in that integrated intervention. So we're talking about alcohol and depression at the same time. We're exploring how they're related. We're, we're coming up with a strategy that they can apply across. And it's not rocket science, but it seems to be really effective. And I, and I know it sounds kind of too obvious to be effective, but for a lot of people, at least in, this tri in the trial, and there were around 300 people in the trial, just sitting down and making those links explicit was pretty mind-blowing for someone. And you think, you know, if you're experiencing mood and alcohol use all this time, you think you'd understand it, that it's linked. But just having someone to sit there with and take you through that was really quite powerful. In every uh, private psychiatric hospital stay, I've heard there's almost a Berlin Wall. Um, this is bringing it down to a patient level. So there's such a stigma attached to particularly substance abuse uh, that patients who are there for mood disorders do not want to associate or be connected to people that have the stigma attached around alcoholism and substance abuse. So there are on separate levels. 
you go to the dining room and people will sit separately and not interact with each other. So even within our population of people that are mentally unwell for one reason or another, be that mood or be that a substance issue, the stigmatisation within the hospital system itself. Is anything happening on the technology front to help this patient group? So smartphones now, the number of applications that I have that remind me to take my medication, um, to chart my mood, uh, then if I'm charting that I'm too high or too low or I've started drinking again, you know, this is the time to get in touch with the medical professionals. So Black Dog does a lovely job of um, getting into the e-health space. Um, and our group at National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre have also developed some of the first evidence-based online treatments for comorbidity, where you can access these kinds of programs for yourself or in you know, parallel in conjunction with a clinician. So technology is just a game changer for access and for ongoing support without necessarily overtaxing the, you know, overburden resources that we already have. One's called Shade. Um, so again, if you Google these, these will come up. Shade, there's a deal for younger people. Uh, there's a Healthy Lifestyles app, HLP, CCBT on the App Store um, that addresses uh, lifestyle issues, so diet, exercise, sleep, mood, tobacco and alcohol use. Um, and, but we're working with the New South Wales Health Ministry to develop a front end for all the community to be able to access these programs. So that'll be called Eclipse um, and that'll be launched um, later next year. Given the sometimes catastrophic or even potentially fatal consequences of alcoholism, is there ever a place to evoke the Mental Health Act or enforce mandatory care? There, there used to be an, an act around years ago called the Inebriates Act and you could actually you know, put someone in the hospital under this act if they suffered from an alcohol problem. The, the trouble with the act was that you went into a psych hospital and nobody had talked about alcohol, so you sat there among people with all different disorders and your disorder wasn't addressed. And basically they hoped that you'd sneak out the door and run away. And I remember there was one case where Pat O'Shane was on the newspapers, told the doctors that she would hold them personally responsible if they let the patient run away. So they didn't let the patient run away, but the patient wasn't getting treatment. So it didn't matter that they were in hospital for three months because they weren't getting the appropriate treatment to address that. Now, they brought out a more recent act. Uh, it's the Involuntary Drug and Alcohol um, Treatment Facility. They, they've got 12 beds in Orange and they've got, I think, four to six beds in... Um, it's very hard to get in. I mean, there's only that number of beds and this, you know, this disorder affects 10% of the population or something like that. And if you compare that with the number of, you know, accredited mental health beds, it's only, it's only minor in comparison. The other problem you've got is there's a very big difference between the legal definition of mental illness and mental illness itself. So in the legal definition, you have to prove the person's an immediate risk to themselves, like fairly immediate and someone drinking all their life they're not going to see that as a risk to reputation, unfortunately. When people are inpatient, say, at your facility, what helps them? Like, what do you feel makes a difference? What differences happen for them that make them more likely to cope when they go home? Um, well, I mean, people come into the facility from all different, in all different states. Um, I think... The best outcomes are when I already have a relationship with the person and I've been seeing the person outside for a long time 
kind of establish some sort of therapeutic rapport. They're the ones who have the best result because we've worked out together that, you know, now is a good time for them to come into hospital. The problem with a lot of people, a lot of people come into hospital, they're referred by their solicitor, you know. Just it'll look good in the court case, you know. So a lot of people come in for that reason. But despite that, some of them actually have a really good outcome because, you know, it has never really occurred to them they have a problem. But, you know, we give them instructions, just look for the similarities with the other patients. And, you know, I remember one guy laughed for 10 minutes after the weekend when I put him in. He said, I am such an alcoholic. But he had no idea. He had told me on the Friday that, you know, my wife wants me in here. She thinks I'm an alcoholic, you know, I'm just coming in to humour her. So, and he, he was dry ever since that. He never drank again. So, so it, it's very difficult to say what actually makes for a successful outcome. But I think the relationship is one thing. So if the person's already got a relationship with you, then probably stay with that service. The big problem in the private sector in drug and alcohol is a patient comes in, they relapse. They're too ashamed to come back, and they don't have to. There's 10 other facilities, so they'll do the rounds, and then they'll come back to you a couple of years later. Um, but what we try to do is integrate everyone into our treatment program so that when they leave hospital, they walk out with a discharge plan, a very structured, so they're taking the structure of the hospital with them. And part of that discharge plan is coming back to day programs. And one day program will be aimed at life skills, you know, how to manage feelings, etc. And the other will be interpersonal because everybody with an addiction has really stretched their relationships to the nth degree. And then we also recommend we have meetings on every night at the hospital, 12-step meetings, which... So we have different ones. We've got CMA, which is crystal meth. We've got NA, which is Narcotics Anonymous. AA, we've even got one for relatives, Al-Anon. So, and um, we haven't got CODA, which is Codependence Anonymous, but we're trying to get a few others in as well. So people can come back to the one facility. I was trying to set up a rehab as well, because if you can have a seamless service, a one-stop shop where, where they can get everything, you're, you're more likely to have more successful outcomes, I think. And what I do too is we have the same therapists working in the hospital as working the day program, so they're not meeting a whole new bunch of people when they go into the day program. We put them in the day programs, the aftercare programs, while they're still an inpatient. So they're integrated into a treatment program. I mean, having said that, we still, still have, you know, don't have the success rate I'd like to have. We have what's called H&I meetings, which are hospital in, you've probably done them that, hospital and institution, so someone from a 12-step group will come in and talk to the other patients. And it's very helpful because, you know, the patients can see, well, you know, there's where I can get to, you know. If, and, and often these people end up sponsoring people in the program. Are there, been, are there ex-patients who've been through the program before with us? That's the reason I do the volunteering for the Black Dog. If I can stand up in front of a room of people and demonstrate that I have a mental illness, I am an alcoholic, but yet I am leading a fulfilling life. I'm very happy with my career, where I live, how I lead my life. It's a message of hope. Mm -hmm. One thing we've failed 
to mention we've focused a lot on private psychiatric hospitals tonight. There are a lot of not-for-profit rehabs out there as well. We haven't mentioned that. So when you're dealing with the whole community, uh, there are rehabs that are probably anywhere from as minimal as eight weeks through to a whole year people can spend in uh, rehabilitation facilities. If they're not working, these rehabilitations take a portion of their Centrelink payments to cover their stay. They still get a little bit of pocket money on the side. Uh, so there, there are services for the whole socioeconomic uh, group of people. We're becoming more aware that people with comorbid mental health conditions often experience poor physical health outcomes as well. Can you comment further on the correlation between physical and mental health? I think it, it is a national disgrace that the physical health of people who experience mental disorders is so neglected. We had another example here. Um, and, uh, and so... And I guess also our concept of comorbidity now is about it's you know not just about two disorders it's about it's about the person's life and that um, and cons you know considering the person in the, the that whole context is is critical for a number of reasons one of which it provides so many more opportunities for treatment so you may not be able to engage a person in a discussion about alcohol but you might be able to about their physical health or their appearance and then um, you know and those broader health issues and then work in messages about mental health and drug and alcohol use by starting where the person is prepared to make some change and where they feel they might be able to have a discussion um, so I think it's it's again a critical thing that we need to be thinking about in the context of you know, of, of thinking about the person sitting in front of us who's asking for our help. It's not just the service that we're operating in, it's their, it's their life that they're yep. operating in. Lived experience, mm -hmm. uh, heights of mania, so insight is completely out the window. Um, the uh, desire for sex, as everyone's probably well aware, during a bipolar high shoots through the roof, you throw in alcohol into the mix. Um, Yes, there have been situations of risky behaviour in my much earlier days, and I have presented to a GP primarily around concerns of STIs, um, but that was still siloed. It was just about the possibility of STIs. It wasn't about what fueled that, why did you engage in that behaviour, what else was going on in your life at the time. Um, because it's not my normal personality. And this was with the family GP that I'd known for 20 years. So yeah. you'd assume... You'd assume if anyone was going to pick up on it. it you know? Yeah, correct, <laughs> yeah. correct. Um, yeah. um. And I think in fairness to, to GPs, a bit like teachers, they're getting, you know, uh, yeah. lumped with everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, and to a certain extent, you do need to, as a GP, no, I'm not a GP, of course, but you need to... You know, respect and acknowledge and, and treat what the person has come to you with. Yes. Um, so maybe, you know, the onus is on us as researchers and, more, you know, and, and clinicians with a vested interest in you know, people with lived experience in comorbidity and, and related issues is to try to think of ways to support, um, you know, those broader measures and assessments and screens and, um, and treatment yep. options. Do you have any advice as to how we start reducing stigma amongst health professionals for people struggling with alcohol and mental health difficulties? Um, and I, th I think in overcoming stigma, it's a massive task, but I think we can all, you know, move towards that by understanding that we're all humans and that, um, you know, 
these the humans who are um, using alcohol or other drugs and, and struggling with mental illness are, are kind of doing the best they can with what they've got. And, um, you know, and these are just ordinary people under extraordinary pressure and to have a bit of empathy um, for, you know, for them trying their hardest to make it through the day with whatever resources they have available to them. And that's a different headspace from, you know, one saying, you know, being judgmental about the behaviour and you're being a nuisance. And, you know, if they knew a better way, they, I'm sh no one would elect to, you know, to... to you know, Struggle like that, yeah. No, I didn't sit at school at age 14 and say at age 41 I hope to live with bipolar and have mm. alcoholism. Yeah. wasn't a goal yeah. of mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think there's a big problem with education around addiction and alcohol. I mean, I've seen medical students come through and they've got half a day. That's their whole drug and alcohol experience. So they really don't have that much understanding around it at all. I, I really think... It's still that idea that they're doing it to themselves. Um, and, I mean, you mentioned down the back there about how, well, we're all doing it to ourselves, you know, whether you're smoking cigarettes, eating too much cholesterol or eating sugar when you're prone to diabetes or whatever. We're all doing those things, and that's a choice, but the effect on us isn't a choice. And, you know, 94% of the Australian population drink, but only, like, 5% end up with a problem, so you can't blame them for having a problem when we're all doing the same behaviours. But there isn't enough education for doctors around that or for other health professionals either for them to understand that these people actually don't have the same choice that people who don't have an addiction have. I'd like to leave it with a message of hope. Mm -hmm. We have come so far since I was diagnosed with bipolar having conversations around mental illness since I've been diagnosed. It's not as hard to have that conversation anymore. Well, that might be a good, good finishing point for our evening tonight. Please join me in thanking our wonderful panel. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to Black Dog Institute on iTunes. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdog.org.au.